Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of the Pandemonium podcast, sponsored by the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. Today on the podcast, we are taking a look at the opioid epidemic through the lens of an attorney here in Pennsylvania. Her name is Lori Jubilier. She is someone who's been involved with a lot of people who struggle with drug and opioid use disorder and can really help us understand the troubles that people may face when seeking treatment for those disorders in the uh, criminal justice system. As always, if you're liking the podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. It helps tremendously. If you're feeling generous, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Rothman Foundation at rothmanopioid.com. It will help fund opioid-related projects such as this one. A quick introduction for our guest today. Attorney Lori Jubilee received her Bachelor's of Arts degree at the University of Pennsylvania in 1984 and earned her Juris Doctor at Temple University James E. Beasley School of Law in 1987. Ms. Jubilee also earned a master's degree in trial advocacy in 1995 at the Temple University James E. Beasley School of Law. Prior to starting her own law practice, she worked as a prosecutor at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office and a Deputy Attorney General at the Pennsylvania Office of the Attorney General. She uses her years of experience, advocacy skills, and compassion to fight for her clients' rights in the criminal justice system and for her civil rights clients whose constitutional rights have been violated. She has also handled civil rights cases involving excessive use of force by law enforcement and violations of constitutional rights by prison officials in both state and federal courts. So without further ado, Attorney Lori Jubilee. So welcome everyone to another episode of the Pandemonium Podcast. I'm going to start today by reading an essay that I came across my, uh, my email a couple weeks ago. It's entitled, Some Bad News. This morning... As I was on my laptop, an email came across my screen. Lori, I'm afraid I have some terrible news. Our son took his own life yesterday. I thought you should know, as he cared very much about you, as do I. Their son was my client, as I endured the initial stun and shock the tears began. I let out a good long cry, not only for this client, but for many other clients whose voices are not heard, rather silenced by those who hold power over them and fail to use them for good. Memories of my client began pouring through my head. His struggles with severe anxiety, depression, and other mental health conditions, a brain injury, as well as drug addiction. He was in and out of college, and despite all the trouble he underwent, he wanted to have a career and independence. I recalled the long talks that we had and how I always tried to support him and show him that I truly cared about his wellness to instill in him the idea that he mattered. My client had just turned 34 years old last month. When he was 21, he was in a tragic car accident that resulted in the death of his passenger, his arrest for homicide by vehicle and DUI, and ultimately a traumatic brain injury and a significant worsening of his anxiety. After serving some time in state prison, he came home to a period of parole and probation, as well as the loss of his driver's license for an extended amount of time. Most recently, he was trying to get his life together he saw that medical and mental health care worked and attended college. He loved music and strived to have a career related to his passion. He had a very good heart and was always kind. He was appreciative of all that I did for him. The criminal justice system failed him. Even while I was able to assist him with a civil rights case that we brought against the local prison's medical department for the failure to properly wean him off of his anxiety medication, he still continued to suffer from being unable to move forward with his life. His independence was compromised by his remaining, by his remaining license suspension, which had been in effect for the last 12 years since his arrest for homicide by vehicle. Still, right before he passed away, 
an administrative agency refused to restore his license and he faced having to wait even longer to drive. His mental health issues and drug addiction also held him back from achieving all that I knew he was capable of. I hope and pray that I never receive news like this again. To the judges, prison officials, probation officers, state parole officials, and others who hold power and influence in our criminal justice system, please get to know the men, women, and children whom you supervise. They are all human beings and deserve to be treated with dignity, respect, care, and compassion. My client mattered. His life mattered. May his life and my message make a difference in the future of our criminal justice system. So again, this essay entitled Some Bad News was posted on March 25th of this year, written by Lori Jubilier. Um, she's an attorney in Pennsylvania. Ms. Julier has been in practice for over 30 years and has a long-standing reputation for excellence amongst both her peers and her clients. Some of the areas she has worked in include criminal defense, civil rights, as well as juvenile law. She also has a strong understanding of the issues revolving around opioid and drug addiction treatment in the criminal justice system. And we're very lucky to have her on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Chaim. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And I think it's great that you're here because we, we've had so many podcasts dealing with different aspects of this problem, the opioid epidemic. We've had physicians. We've had people who are in the legislative system kind of talk about their end of, this, of the problem. But a lot of times, as we were talking about before the podcast, there are people, clients, who are charged with drug offenses who get kind of sought through the gaps and don't get the treatment they deserve. So you've been in, you know, in practice for a long, long time. You have a lot of experience. Um, have you always been around those who are charged with drug-related offenses? And if so, um, what brought you into this space? Um, I started my career in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office for about eight years. I was prosecuting various crimes, misdemeanors and felonies and juveniles. And then I took a period of time to work for the Attorney General's Office where I was mostly defending civil rights and civil litigation. But my passion has always been to help people. So seven and a half years ago, I started my own practice in 2013. And my I, what I've been doing in my own practice is helping the, say, the underserved, indigent clientele, people who are facing powerful criminal justice system and need an advocate. And I, that's what I've been. And I absolutely love what I do. And I love making a difference in their lives. This problem has been around for a long time, right? So we've heard about the opioid epidemic since, you know, early 1990s, even before that. Um, have you learned much when you were in, in law school itself? Were they talking about this at all? Or was it something that you kind of learned while you were you know, facing the people in, in the streets and the clients? I went to Temple University School of Law and I graduated in 1987. I don't recall t talking about this opioid addiction crisis. I took criminal justice class, criminal procedure and criminal law and litigation classes. I don't recall. However, throughout my practice, especially in the criminal justice system, it's been very prevalent amongst my clientele and oftentimes the root of that led to an arrest and in coming into the criminal justice system. Have you seen an increase in the amount of cases that you're handling in regards to this type of situation? It's very prevalent, yes. I would say many, many of my clients have addiction issues, yes. And that being said, is there 
are there are the needs being matched in this type of situation in terms of are there a lot of defense attorneys who are actually addressing the situation or is this something that there's still needs that have to be met from a legal defense standpoint obviously like the treatment side we're going to talk about that soon but from a legal defense side if someone gets arrested let's say with a drug-related offense are they going to be able to reach out to someone who has intimate knowledge of this issue like to help them get the resources they need or is it something that still needs to be worked on I definitely think it needs to be worked on, although there has been progress in the criminal justice system. One of the things that didn't always exist from when I started is drug treatment court, for example. And so I've had lots of, lots of experience with that in Philadelphia, Montgomery County, and this other suburban areas in this area. So that's positive, except, and they do give them many more chances in drug treatment court, for example, if they relapse. But once they reach a certain point if they don't succeed and it's a rigorous program then they come back to regular criminal justice system where the focus is often more about punishment and there's not forgiveness for relapses they're they're treated often like it's a criminal situation when it's really a disease that needs to be treated so that's one of the things that I see and I would love to see change in that area. I know we were talking before the podcast started about um, different viewpoints and people who are addressing this from different sides. So judges, attorneys, um, the correctional officers themselves. So how would you say the overall feeling is to these people? When you, to these people, are you referring to the people like the... You, you talk about in your essay how there are you know, multiple aspects of the criminal justice system. We obviously talk about you know, making sure people have consequences for their actions, but at a certain point, understanding that there's going to be a relapse situation if you don't get the treatment you need. And so do people, and by people I mean, do the, the, the lawyers, the, all these people, do they, um, the judges, do they play a role in, in giving these people the treatment? And how do they feel about it? I had different judges and different probation officers and parole agents and officials in power field. Depends on their person, sometimes their temperament, personality, background. I'm thinking of one particular judge in Montgomery County who's a magisterial district, a magistrate district judge, in Mon- and she has started her own or involved in starting a treatment program. So when she, when clients come through her courtroom, She's very sensitive to that, and even while they're in the middle of a preliminary hearing or inside the criminal justice system, she will refer them and make calls and give them phone numbers and say, go here, there's a bed here for you, there's a space here for you. That's rare, though. But she, I, I love when the, I see that happen, I get chills, because it's the right thing. And um, But however, there's oftentimes... Has she, I'm sorry, yeah. has she seen success with her I believe so it's her she's it's I don't know how many years it's been around but she has a a card that she gives to clients that have the name of the treatment center that's a big factor too having you know the availability right next to where you live right and sometimes clients are involved in addiction that they don't know where to turn and they're afraid if they say something for example if they're on probation or parole what if I say something to them and they punish me and they put me in jail. So then they don't say anything and then they suffer in silence and they don't know where to go and how to do it because they're scared. As opposed to a more what I would hope for 
a support, more supportive atmosphere and viewing this as a disease that need, where they need help. And I'm not talking necessarily about someone who can, who's charged with a violent crime, but like a, oftentimes people with addiction are charged with retail theft, theft, um, just more petty crimes, criminal trespass, petty things. No one's getting hurt. They should, they don't belong in jail. Jail doesn't do anything. Now I do want to say something that Montgomery County just started to give people with addictions in their prison something called Subutex. Could you explain just for people who don't know? Do you... Subutex is, I know it's similar to methadone, where it's a substitute for an opioid, and it helps them wean off and not go through a, um, not to go through a bad um, withdrawal symptoms, which are very severe. So that helps them wean, it helps them lose their cravings for it, and my clients feel more empowered and ready to go for treatment outside the prison and continue on the Subutex. That's been huge. And I don't know if it's available in all of our prisons, but I think it's fantastic, a fantastic result for my clients. So while they got that in the prison, when they get out, they need to get the support to continue it and not just stay there for a long time to be punished. But do you feel like the climate is changing in that regard? Do you feel like more people are accepting that? I do. Yeah. I do. Um, I just am frustrated by what I see, at least locally often in, Mo in Montgomery County, especially where the vibe of punishment if and strict rules... And when someone relapses, like one, two, three, you're out type of thing, as opposed to let's get to know them, let's try to help them, what can we do, as opposed to putting them in a state prison. I read a bit so, about, and this is just a, a small portion of the essay I talked about before the Sun Bad News. I know that you've done a lot of writing about um, situations that you've come across and things that we need to work on. Could you tell me a bit about why you chose to write about this particular case specifically? And what do you think that we can learn from? So this was and by, thank you so much for writing it. I feel um, like it's a really good thing to have out there. Um, I, I personally felt, uh, I, I've definitely felt some emotion after reading this. And I thought that uh, it's hard for people who don't go through a very similar situation to understand what it means to relapse and what it means to seek treatment when you're kind of viewed a certain way. So. It's important for people to know this. So I, first of all, I want to thank you for writing it. And I, I will link to it in the show notes as well. Um, I wrote this. This was an extreme example of what can happen to someone when the system fails them. While the system is designed, unfortunately, to punish people when, they're, when there's an arrest and there's a, a criminal ac accusation, what I wanted to sh bring out by writing this was that it's often we don't think about the accused. We think about the victim of the crime, the crime itself, how it affects the community, and how we just want to put someone behind closed doors inside a prison because they did a, committed a wrong. But that's not always the answer because, for example, this gentleman who I wrote about, he pretty much did everything right he was doing well and why did he have to be on probation what like 12 years later and why couldn't he drive 
he had not been involved in any more criminal convictions, anything where anyone was at risk of being hurt. He suffered from mental health, mental illness, and I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back when he went into court and I learned that the victim of his homicide by vehicle, the mother of that victim was in court and objecting to probation being terminated. She was out to get him like, and the DA's office unfortunately couldn't, in my opinion, do the right thing and take a step back and say, it's enough is enough. And this isn't a good result. This isn't a good solution. This is what we want to happen. We wanted to see him be a productive, successful, positive citizen in our community. And and his death, just a, it just was, it went right through my heart and it affected me and, it, and made me want to write and do something in his blessed memory and to hopefully make people aware of what can happen when we don't think about the human beings that the criminal justice system affects and that they do matter. Do you think that if he would have received maybe some of that mental health treatment uh, more effectively and maybe even received his driver license, you know, he would still be alive and a productive member of society today contributing? You had talked a little bit about how what he wanted to do, he wanted to go into music as well. So. Mm-hmm. He was doing okay. He just needed to know that people were in his corner. I really think so. And when he... And I wasn't in the court when this happened, but I learned from his father that unfortunately his suicide took place three hours after the court hearing. And it just was like, oh, wow. Who normally controls um, when you're released the type of access you have towards, let's say, a driver license and stuff like that? So there's two separate proceedings when certain types of crimes have a criminal penalty and a driving driver's license penalty. So PennDOT is the the one that makes the decisions and has the power and control over licensing issues. And there's a whole step-by-step procedures that someone needs to go through when to restore their driver's license, which is when someone's convicted of a homicide by vehicle, that's another consequence of it. So there was there was something i believe and i wasn't involved in that part of his case there was something involved in pendot and the bureaucracy and he they were he was trying to get the license back but it just wasn't working so i think it frustrated him because honestly he deserved after all these years to be able to move on it was best for him it was really best for the community he could have been a productive like i say positive citizen citizen person son boyfriend whatever to our society so i wanted to ask you and i think this is a really important topic to discuss now um so when someone is arrested and there are different stages of their experience in the criminal justice system so they're being arrested maybe their time in jail and after they're released as well so three different time periods what type of challenges and what type of resources, and I know this is a very you know, generalized question, but for the, for the average person, what type of resources do they have available to them if they need to seek treatment? Um, and I'll have some statistics that I um, did a little bit of research on. This is from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, an estimated 65% of the United States prison population has an active substance use disorder. 
Uh, another 20% did not meet the official criteria, but were under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of their crime. Um, and there have been a couple of studies out of North Carolina that have showed that inmates are um, 74 times more likely uh, to overdose from opioids in the general population. So right off the bat, um, and, and there are multiple reasons for that. One has been speculated that when you're released, you're, you're not used to your normal tolerance of, let's say, opioids that you've taken before. So you kind of relapse and you kind of have those withdrawal symptoms and you're like, I need to have some that I had before and you end up overdosing. So overall, right off the bat, when you're involved in the criminal justice system with an opioid use disorder or a drug use disorder, you're at a disadvantage. What resources are available that you're aware of, let's say, when you're either arrested or you're in jail in and of itself that can make this better? Well, upon the arrest is a little complicated because it depends on whether you're on the street or in jail. It's harder if you're in jail, although this new Subutex program, I think, has been a very positive thing. So that's something inside the prison. I know in, in Montgomery County, they're going to be starting a whole pretrial services unit that's not up and running yet. So perhaps, and I hope that they will address and evaluate people from the get-go and prefer them from the get-go. Because oftentimes I believe that that's not done upon arrest, but that's done upon either a conviction and probation department referrals. Oftentimes there is an outside agency doing evaluations when requested. Um, one of them is called Rise Above, and then they make a referral. But that, to, for example, inpatient or outpatient, those, again, are generally used by judges for sentencing. So that's after they're convicted and after their, 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 their cases are resolved. So beforehand, I think there, it would be wonderful to have resources to people so they could even show the judge before their if there is a sentencing, look what I did. I'm... I can, I got help and I'm, I can be, I don't need to be in jail or in somewhere confined. Have you seen any effect that COVID has had on this type of treatment or not really? A big effect because especially in the beginning, it was places like inpatient programs are um, just like prisons where people are close together. It's with COVID, it's so contagious and they weren't offering as there weren't beds available or inpatient treatment available. I know people in the area that had to do it remotely. So the support groups, you didn't have the, the people and they were all on a square, I guess, and, and on their phones or on a laptop. And that's not as good. So I know that, and they, they, they didn't have the counselors available. They, they, went, they couldn't go to the treatment center and see people and talk to people and I think it may, and I think because of COVID, the and people without the resources and depression and all the side of bad negative side effects and led to more addiction, just from what I'm seeing, and with my clients. So it's I, I hope and pray that we get through this, that people get back a little bit more back to normal and have those resources. And one of the things um, that I thought was interesting is there was another study done that showed that. Um, it, it was kind of like reinforcing the, the general consensus that if you receive buprenorphine or, or let's say methadone treatment after you're released, you're, what was the exact, it was like really high, like some like 50% more likely to continue treatment. 
after you're released, which is a huge thing because, uh, like I said, you're at more risk of overdosing when you're on the streets. And uh, surprise, surprise, when you relapse, you generally have an increased risk of going back to crime. And so there's a, a number that's been pushed around a lot about how um, the cost to the healthcare system uh, estimated to be like $14.6 billion from drug use disorders and relapse and crime that's related to that. So would you say that your, some of your clients are facing trouble after they're being released from seeking that treatment? Is there uh, a certain amount of time that someone who's been released from jail has access to a treatment center? Or is that just something that they have to go on and seek themselves? Oftentimes they are, if, if it's inpatient and they're going from the prison, they will find them a bed. And I, my understanding is if they, if they don't have health insurance, that the government will provide it, which is, I think there is government money for treatment with people that don't have insurance. So I, that's, I know that for sure that they, at least in this County where I work in Montgomery, that's what they do. And, um, in terms of if they're on the street and they're not, and and they need to do outpatient, I believe that, that the probation department would refer them to places to get evaluated and to go. And they're supposed to follow the instructions and do that. And obviously that kind of revolves around how close it is geographically to where they are and how accessible it is. If they're looking for a job as well, that can all challenge the whole situation. So um, it's good to know that. Um, as we come to a close, as we near the end, I like to always divide the call to action to three different populations. And you may not be able to talk about all of them, but I just want to pose the, the, the question to you. So um, as you sit here as a, as a defense attorney who's working and has a lot of experience in this matter, how would you... Uh, first of all, guide your uh, legislators and the people who are involved in the criminal justice system to kind of address this problem, this opiate epidemic, and the treatment that revolves around it. I would like to see a allowing judges more discretion in sentencing when there is a verified drug addiction, as opposed, there are sentencing guidelines that judges use and have to abide by when they sentence people, there should be more flexibility and discretion when someone needs drug treatment and it's not a, considered a crime of violence, let's put it that way, where, someone, where, where there's communities at risk. And I don't see that now. And I think the, the criminal justice system is too, has, is too rigid and we need we should, attorneys, medical professionals, we should, and legislators, we should all use our combined efforts to come up with an agreeable solution and consider this as a disease, not always as a crime. And that's a big message I want to put out for all the people in, in our system. We before about one judge in particular who's doing a good job of handling that. Um, have you seen a lot more pushback in terms of in the actual courtroom itself where judges would not necessarily give someone the treatment they need? I, what I see is after a certain amount of chances, they, 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 um, they're, they're more about, pun- they go more, you have to serve some jail time now. You have to be punished now. And I don't think that serve, does anybody any good. That's sitting in a jail without any treatment. I mean, there haven't also been many programs because of COVID lately in jails, there used to be more. So just sitting there in a cell with 
being punished doesn't help anyone. It's one of those things that like larger reform really is needed in how we view treating people who have this disorder. Um, as, as we move on um, from a different aspect, your, your clients in particular and patients who suffer from opioid use disorder and drug use disorder, uh, what should they know beforehand if they're ever involved in a situation like this where they're arrested or they're accused of a crime? What should they know about their rights and about stuff that they have access to that would help them on their journey? Well, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. So I would say reach out if they're able to, if they can have an attorney or a professional to reach out to for advice, guidance, and support in those early stages because it's it helps them to get treatment and help. It, it help, would help their criminal case. It helped them personally. And if they can find those resources, it would be positive. And so if someone, let's say, in this area wanted to, you know, unfortunately is in the situation, how would they go about learning about what you do or reading about some of your articles? Is there, you, you have a website? Um, are you on any, like, social media yet? Or Yes, I have a website, jubileerlaw.com, and I publish my articles and blogs on there on my website i'm on linkedin you can find me under i don't know the exact thing but laurie jubileer and i am also on um i have a business facebook page as well where i post articles and posts about what i'm doing um you should expect some more articles coming soon yes i i have one and if i may comment on something that that is part of my the system failing people. Um, I have, and just to, I'm going to be writing about the, it this month. Three different clients or prospective clients who have contacted me have all who all have drug addiction issues. All sought treatment. One of them was went to a went to a local rehab to get treatment. They said you need to get cleared by the hospital went to the hospital with some kind of box. I think they brought some needles in the box for some reason. The police were called and he was arrested. So he couldn't get into the rehab because I don't know why the police were called. Number one. Number two, a somebody on state parole completing their, their a drug treatment program on their own, but because they didn't tell their state parole agent, they got punished and sent to a prison. Number three, a client went to a, a rehab and was trying to find another one because unfortunately he had been ass, uh, assaulted in that rehab and was trying to find another one. But he was still there when his state parole agents went to the rehab and arrested him for violating and not finishing the program. These are three examples of the rigidity of the criminal justice system punishing people who are trying to help themselves and putting them in jails, all three of them ended up in jails after they tried or attempted to try to help themselves. And that is very sad. So I, I know that you wanted to bring up, you were aiming at a, a different story before. Do you want to talk about that quickly as well? Yes. I have a, a client that I want to talk about who is in a local prison and she is, is a heroin addict and uh, has been struggling with it for a number of years. She's in her twenties. And I, it's a sad comment on how we're treating her because she is in a jail with two broken bones in her leg and is trying to get out for surgery. And unfortunately, 
because the system will not let her out because of her addiction and her how she was in the community and her relapses that she had before she went there. But the sad thing is she's had two broken bones for four months and we're trying to get her out for surgery. And I've had more than one judge turn me down. What's the pushback? Where, where is the pushback coming from? It's coming from her. She, when she's out, she's she was in an accident yeah. when she was under the influence. And that was one of her, she overdosed. She went back, she relapsed. And um, she was found in a car overdosing and the police got involved and she tried to take off and they viewed, they, they charged her with an aggravated assault because she bumped into one of the police cars, for example. But that's another, it's just another example of how we treat our fellow human beings. She totally needs help. She should be an inpatient. She should be allowed to get surgery. We treat our animals better. She's suffering with two broken bones in a prison walking or trying to in a boot and she needs surgery and she can't recover there safely so she's still in there and it, it's just weighs on my heart on a regular basis when I hear from her and I'm trying to do everything I can so this is still going it, it, it's still it's yes awful. and th- that we need to train we need to ha- have our legislate uh, our legislators involved our parole board involved in training the parole agents that applying rules so rigidly to 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 punish people and put them in prison who are trying to help themselves is wrong well we really appreciate the work that you've done so far one final thing i just that you brought to mind um we had talked a bit before about your education in this regard and a lot of it comes when you're actually in practice dealing with these clients and kind of seeing the shock i see in your you know, I was going to say that it's, it's amazing that we're in person. This is one of the first episodes we're doing in person. And it's it's lovely to see you because there's an emotional aspect that I think is so important here. And if people can see what we're looking at right now, it's someone who really seems like they really do care. And I see that in your facial expressions, obviously covered by the mask, so I can't see everything. But um, really, really appreciate that. And do you think... Um, we talked a bit about education. So do you think that uh, legal education is going to be more tailored in the future in the upcoming years towards helping people who suffer from this disorder and how we can effectively manage their care when they're in this criminal justice system as well as in the I public? hope and pray. Yeah. I hope and pray. And it's also, we can see in our recent current events with how police deal with people who are under the influence, for example, and want to, instead of trying to say, hey, I think you need to go get some help and no, let's arrest and punish them because I see a bag of weed, for example, in their car. No, help them. Why, why are we, let's take a step away. Why, why are we doing this in our society? Is this what we want to do to our fellow human beings? No, and I hope and pray that there are changes upon education and training of all of us, including attorneys such as myself. I, I took an attorney CLE a few years ago, was deal teaching us what adi- about addiction what is it medically and it's and saying it's a disease they can't, they need help this is what we appreciate about you you're always learning <laughs> it's exactly. to be a lesson for all of us exactly. uh, yeah it's it's a, it's it's still a huge problem as you mentioned uh, pennsylvania is one of the highest uh, prescribed opioid states in the country 
Uh, and there's no shortage of states around us that are suffering from the same problems. So you have people from all across every border who are kind of in this situation. COVID is going to be a huge factor. We'll see where that takes this epidemic, which already was a problem beforehand. Um, but again, as we wrap things up, I really want to thank you for all that you've done. Um, you are a new face towards this podcast and you've helped put the message out there for not just uh, patients who are undergoing treatment, but as well as people involved in the criminal justice system. And again, if anyone is looking for um, some help in this regard, please seek out Lori um, at her website or at her socials. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for thank having you so me. Much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If I could just have one minute of your time, I'd like to let you know of the sponsor of the podcast, the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. This foundation is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization. It's a wonderful foundation dedicated to providing resources and insight into the opioid epidemic, as well as who it affects and how we're addressing the issue. The objectives of the organization are threefold. The first is to raise awareness in the lay and medical communities of the risks and benefits of safe opioid use. The second is to educate patients, physicians, and policymakers on safe opioid use after injuries and surgeries. And the third is to support research and educational efforts aimed at improving and innovating pain management strategies that can result in decreased opioid use and advance alternatives to opioids. If this sounds like something you would be interested in supporting, please visit rothmanopioid.org and see the tab to donate. Thank you so much, and we appreciate your support.